Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So we've worked our way through the book of Acts, those first couple of chapters in our sermon series of the momentum of the Holy Spirit. Before that, we uh, went through the passion narrative of Jesus going to the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Today, we're going into that Old Testament, friends. So get out your Bibles because we're going to be looking at our Isaiah 6 passage. Now, Isaiah was one of the prophets of old. And like many prophets, he basically did two things. He worked worked to get people to accept that the worst was happening and that was God's judgment. This wasn't some religious catastrophe or political disaster, but it was judgment when the worst is happening. For if the worst is what is God's judgment, then it can't be denied. It can't be avoided. It can only be embraced. And we know that our God is good and uses that and intends the worst for our salvation. And so with that, the second thing a prophet would do was to take people who were broken and beaten down and to help them open themselves up to the hope that is in our God. The restorative hope of opening their lives to the work of salvation that God is doing for them in Jesus. Now, the book of Isaiah is expansive. Have you ever gone through it? I think there's like, what, 60, 100 chapters? It's really long. It's beautiful. It's poetry. It virtually is dealing with everything that is involved in the people of God living on this planet Earth. It's impressive. He takes, Isaiah does, takes ordinary stuff and disappointing human experiences and shows us how this is the very stuff that God uses to create, to save, and to give hope. Isaiah shows us that nothing is unusable by God. He uses everything and everybody as material for his work, participating in the remaking of this mess that is our lives through Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to start right there at verse 1. Now this comes five chapters after Isaiah has already done a bit of prophesying. He receives his call. He's already declared that Judah is lost to sin. But here we are at verse 1. Hector's throwing it up. We're good to go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, Uzziah was considered a pretty good king by the biblical historians. He had a long and distinguished reign of 52 years, just barely beating out my mom here, and he started at the age of 16. Thus, the early years of Isaiah's upbringing would have been years of stability and prosperity for the nation. And you can read about Uzziah if you want in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. I'm just trying to show you how smart I am here. Because he was described as he was, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He sought God in the day of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And prosper he did. He led Israel in victories over the Philistines and other neighboring nations. He was strong. He was an energetic builder. He was also a planner. He was described as having fame reaching to as far as the entrances of Egypt and extremely strong. Uzziah, friends, was a good king. But the last 10 years of Uzziah's life were somewhat different. King Uzziah tried to enhance his status as the supreme ruler of Israel and Judah and took the role of the priest and tried to go into the temple and offer prayer directly to Yahweh. Well, the temple priest challenged him, and what happens is Uzziah is cursed by God with a skin disease, more than likely leprosy. And because of that, he was isolated, and the government then ran through his son Jotham for the remaining years of his life. 
I only tell you that so that you see that Isaiah, in just four simple words of saying in the year that King Uzziah died, is to say a lot. Because Uzziah was a good king and he was wise, yet his end was tragic. And his death would bring about feelings of discouragement, of uncertainty, and questions. Questions of where is the Lord and what will become of the nation of Judah? And in the moment of that questioning and in the moment of that uncertainty, Isaiah has a strange experience that is not only frightening but also very motivating. Isaiah was transported and saw the throne of God in heaven and saw and heard the heavenly angels chanting their worship, which if you're wondering what that sounds like, we just heard it when doctor had the going with the organ and everybody was singing, especially you, Mitch. Now, Isaiah saw for himself the Lord is in one place, enthroned in heaven. He is high and lifted up, exalted and majestic. The train of his robe fills the temple. Princess Kate's got nothing on him. You can't even stand in there because his majesty and his beauty is indescribable. And it is an unchanging fact of all those who have had visions of heaven, see God on his throne. Micaiah saw God on his throne in 1 Kings. Job saw God on his throne. King David saw it. The sons of Koran saw it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. John, the apostle, saw it and mentioned it not once but 35 times in the book of Revelation. Isaiah may have been depressed or discouraged because a great leader of Judah was no longer on the throne. But God is here to show Isaiah and us that he is always enthroned. That, friends, is a not-so-subtle reminder that our faith And our hope is not in the earthly leaders that we have, but in God alone who is our true refuge and strength, God alone who is our creator and father, God alone who sits on the throne. And in case we are ever tempted to think that we are just a momentary speck within an indifferent universe, or that we are the ones who are supposed to sit on the throne, Let us come back to this image of our father on the throne because Isaiah is going to come to the realization that he can either trust in the power of man or he can trust in the power of God. Describes him as seraphim, each with six wings, two wings covering their faces, two covering their feet, two to use to fly, calling to one another, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. These six seraphim is just a fancy word. I googled it. It basically means angels. Isaiah is describing that their wings are covering their face, showing humility, covering their, I'm sorry, uh, covering their face, showing they're too lowly to look upon the Lord, covering their feet to show that they are in humility before the Lord and ready to fly with their wings because they will do whatever it is that the Lord asks. And if you do some looking deep, you can find that Charles Spurgeon said that this is basically the story of Martha and Mary, where it is better to show humility and sit at the feet of the Lord and then be ready to serve, but worship and reverence of God has to come first. But you can look into the symbolism all you want, but do not miss that these heavenly beings, these powerful creatures, hid their face before God because in the words of Wayne and Garth, they were not worthy. And so they shout praises and they shout out holy three times and fill the room. 
The ancient fathers used these three calls of holy, holy, holy to show that the God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One shout, each one. In the Hebrew language, that repetitiveness of continuing to say it is to show that it really means something. It's not just once. It is the highest form of holiness. God's holiness is a part of everything he is and does. God's power is a holy power. His love is a holy love. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. Holiness is not an aspect of his personality. It is a characteristic of his entire being. That holiness of our God is the most attractive quality, the most intense experience of sheer life we could ever see. And God's holiness is a furnace that transforms those who come to him and enter into it. His glory is a glory that fills not only his temple, but all of creation. These four verses tightly organized, no single wasted word, shows that God is enthroned in majesty and holiness. Now, if you're sitting there like, so what? God is holy. I knew that. God is powerful. I knew that. Think of the tiger at the zoo. When I look at the zoo, you go to the zoo? I go to the zoo when I used to be able to go to the zoo. Now I can go to the zoo again. You can too. We should go to the zoo. Anyways, when you're looking at the tiger, you see it. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But usually you just say, that was awesome. On to the pandas. But when you are in the presence of the tiger, when they remove the glass and you stand before it, it is a completely different feeling. Far too often we are forgetting who our God really is. We are content with our God as the one who we see through the looking glass, the kind grandpa in the sky. But do not forget when the men who came to arrest Jesus, all he said was, I am the one you are looking for. They fell down and cowered in fear, and that was God in his human form. There is a reason we are going to see what Isaiah says next when he is in the very presence of God. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. A man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah looks and sees these creatures, these angels, and all their humility, all their obedience in praising God. He sees their form and realized he is not this. He cannot even compare to them. He can't even cry out, holy, 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 because his lips are unclean. Probably asking himself, what am I doing here? And when he looks and sees the Lord, he realizes and knows exactly what kind of man he was. As poorly as he compared to those angels, he was nothing in relation to how he compared to the Lord. Seeing the Lord in his throne of power did not make Isaiah feel good. The more clearly he saw who the Lord was, the more clearly he saw how badly his state was. He had no business standing in the presence of God Isaiah saw his sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. And specifically, the text mentions his speech. What an interesting thing to mention. Not his idolatry, not his fear, but his speech. And I think this is something that we can probably relate to a lot. For by nature, our lips are flattery and false. One moment we're praising God, the next slandering down our neighbor, speaking kindly to their face and differently to their back. 
by nature our lips are proud, constantly boasting and praising ourselves, talking about others' specks and ignoring our own planks. By nature our lips deceive, white lies, big lies. By nature our lips are violent, whether we speak it or type it, we seek to tear down. And by nature our lips bring death. Each one of us have been victims and abusers of the power of the words that we speak to one another. Looking at our sin, listening to how we have become and how we speak, we can't help but stand before God and cry out, woe is me. Then one of the seraphim flew with a live coal in his hand, taken with tongs from the altar. At this point, I got to think Isaiah wants to run away, but really, how do you run away in a vision? I don't know how to do that. Can't really Homer Simpson yourself into the bush. Sink pile, you seen that one, the meme? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He states out loud, right? I'm going to die. And then to make it worse, one of those angels with all the wings starts flying at him after it grabbed a hot coal, just kind of like holding out. You got to know he was thinking, I remember when Uzziah tried to do something that he probably shouldn't have done. This is not going to go well for me. It's like that part in Thor where he's screaming because he's about to meet the Grand Master, I think, but only he edited it out because Isaiah is the writer. And then suddenly he opens his eyes and angels there and it's not death, but with it he touches his mouth and says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Now we don't get his thoughts, Isaiah's emotions here. But I bet they were overwhelming in that moment. And friends, I think that you would know as well as Isaiah what it is like to experience forgiveness and mercy and love from our Lord. On Calvary, Jesus' work did this for us. Takes away our guilt and our sin is atoned for. Sin placed upon Jesus and burned with the fire of God's judgment and because Christ was holy, he was not consumed by the fire. And so neither shall we. We look at this text and we see that our God is holy. We look at this text and know in ourselves that we are sinners. But our God does not leave us to die in this sin. Rather, our God loves us so much that as we read in the Gospel of John, he was willing to give everything for us. His love welcomes us and makes us his family. His love meets us where we are and bids us come to him. And what we earned and what we deserve is not what we get or what we find here in Jesus. What we find is forgiveness and love, a love that is faithful through any failures that we have, a love that assures us even in death and loss that our God remains with us, a love that is with us to the very end. Our Lord died and gave so that we could live and become something more. In Hebrew, Isaiah's answer is only two words. Here I am, send me. Isaiah was afraid, overcome by a sense of guilt, conscious that he didn't belong there, expecting to die, and yet now he volunteers. Leave that up, Hector, that's a great verse. Now he volunteers to take up God's mission even before he knows what the assignment is. Here I am, send me, is a phrase of confidence and worthiness that was not there before. Friends, that's what the gospel does for you and I. 
it makes all the difference in our lives, just as it does for Isaiah. Isaiah had died and was reborn, and the very first words he speaks as a new man are, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. And this is the last thing I want to spend with you today. Here I am, send me. To answer the same way. A lot of times I hear, well, I'm not the right fit for that, Pastor. Or, you know what, I'm waiting for God to kind of give me a sign or for the lights to kind of all line up before I get involved, before I start happening, helping. Remember this story, Isaiah was in a room with angels. If there was anyone who should have said nothing at that moment, it was Isaiah. And yet he shouts out and volunteers and says, here I am, most unworthy in the room, least likely to succeed. Here I am, send me. He does not hesitate because we cannot let fear control us. We cannot let sin define who we are. We cannot let that inner voice within us tell us that we are no longer good enough, but we must allow God's love and forgiveness to take over us just as it did Isaiah here. Isaiah was compelled to spend the rest of his life trying to communicate the importance of God's love and forgiveness to people of unclean lips. He knew the sin that he had and that the people had, and yet he knew that God's love and forgiveness was more. And so he answered the call to be sent. We have to as well. And I know that your heart is tired. And I know that everything that we have gone through makes it seem like this everything is just too far gone. And now you want me to get involved with something that's going to be just a little bit too much. You know, everything's opening up. There's some things I want to do, like go to the zoo. But I pray that you will choose first to be here with us. And I hope and pray that you will choose to answer the call to be sent out with God's love and forgiveness to where hearts are broken and where people are in need. And you know this is near and dear on my heart, so every time you put me up here, I'm going to tell you. But there are vulnerable children and hurting families that are in desperate need of you. You may not feel like you are worthy. You may not feel like you are ready. You may not know even what you are supposed to do. But I promise you, you're here. It's time to go. Eight families right now are what are in need. We can do that. We need people to drop off meals, to be mentors, and to help with child care. We can do that. Your church needs you. People to greet and to say hello. People to open doors. People to help pass out donuts. People to light candles. People to make phone calls and visits to shut-ins. This is needed beyond what we can fathom. Now is the time to stand and declare, here I am, Lord, send me. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm ready. Isaiah had no clue what he was going to do. He just straight up volunteered. Where's Pam? Those are the best first graders right there, right? They don't know what the answer is. I need a volunteer. Bam, hands up. They're cleaning your desk. Friends, I don't want you to clean the desk. I want you to help and love people. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me.
Will you stand with me and sing this faith that we share together? And as uh, Dr. Heidi makes his way to the organ and we get ready to sing, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, with 12 people, you turn the world upside down. With one congregation, Lord, we believe that you can change this county that we live in. So fill us with your spirit. Break the fear that is in us. Unite us as one church, as one body to move forward, holding to you, God our Father, holding to you, Jesus Christ, the one who has made us, holding to the Spirit who fills us with the ability to do the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to do. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Send us. Amen.